Hey, welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette. Today I'm doing a solo gig. Rumor has it that uh, Jim and Chris had been teleported up to a UFO and have been whisked away to Mars. So we'll wait for them to get back. Hopefully they're going to get some nice slides, maybe some video of trains on Mars. Uh, so we'll see. We have two segments today. First one is with George uh, Bogatuck over at Soundtracks. We're going to be talking about some of the features of Tsunami 2. And then I've got a, a new supplier to the industry, relatively new. Scott has KV models. Does a lot of very fine detailed stainless steel etch metal parts. HO and N scale. Interesting. I'm working on a couple uh, locomotives here that will become blog pieces using his parts. Uh, so anyway, let's get this little uh, show on the road. Hope you enjoy. So how is it in Durango? Oh, it's beautiful here. <laughs> well, we were 83 degrees today. You probably weren't quite that warm. No, we didn't get quite to 83. We got to... Um... We were just under 50, I think. Okay. Durango is such a beautiful area. Oh, I know. Such a beautiful area. George and I are talking about fine-tuning Tsunami 2s in various locomotives because uh, myself, I think George mentioned to me in a conversation, he has had a couple uh, challenging locomotives as well as uh, people on the various forums talking about locomotives with erratic behavior and how do you get the uh, either through the back EMF or CV, you know, three, four, five, six speed tables. One gets these things smoothed out, and two get them to run well. Uh, my particular case. Two uh, same vintage locomotives, they were new. I installed the Tsunami 2, and they would not run together to beat anything. And so George and I talked, and he gave me some suggestions that helped immensely. You had suggested that we go in and tweak some of the back EMF CVs to see if that that helped, CV211 and CV215. Yeah. And okay, so let's go back. Why those two CVs specifically? Well, there's sort of a shortcut. So the in the original tsunami, the uh, the first one that we'll talk about is CV215, which is called back EMF reference voltage. Okay. And what this is doing is it's telling the decoder basically what to expect on the track and the power that's being sent to the decoder. Um, or to the motor, I'm sorry. And when it was hard-coded at 16 volts, what would happen is if uh, if somebody was using it on, say, a 14-volt or a 13-volt system, the decoder was expecting a higher amount of back EMF during those motor off periods, and so therefore was artificially increasing the speed to help overcome and compensate. So Really quickly, I want to back up a little bit and just explain what is back EMF. What are, why are we, okay. 
doing with this and why do we want this? So the first part of this is one of the biggest probably misunderstood or either underrepresented, underexplained, or however you want to word it, is motor control when it comes to DCC. Um, motor control, what everybody's used to as a power pack is you increase the throttle, it sends a little bit higher voltage on the track, and that will then increase the speed of the motor. But DCC and decoders don't do the same thing. They don't just vary the voltage to the motor. What they're actually doing is sending high pulses of track voltage. So if your, vol if your DCC track voltage is 14 volts, expect a 14 volt pulse of power to the motor. And what they do is they vary the duration of this pulse on time versus off time to adjust the speed of the motor. So like, say for example, let's use it in say a one second window. If I'm at quarter throttle, then in that one second window, I have full power applied to my motor for a quarter of that second. And the rest of the three quarters of the second the time is off. Okay. Now, this is done, this is all done in milliseconds, but I'm doing this for an illustration purpose. Now, with that motor now getting that quarter second of power, that other three quarters of second of time, the power is off. If I was to increase the throttle to say 50%, then I'm going to have a 14 volt pulse for half a second, and then the power is going to be off for the other half a second. And this is what's called pulse width modulation. The decoder is modulating or changing the width of the pulse in order to increase the speed or decrease the speed of the motor. Now, the reason this is relevant is because we have uh, very good drives in our models nowadays, and the motor tends to be able to coast a lot better than it ever has in the past. Things like flywheels and, and you know, uh, free running gears and stuff like that tend to allow the motor to continue to turn during that three quarter or half a second that the power is off. Well, as we all know how an electric generator works, you take a windings inside a magnet and spin it and it creates electric uh, power. Well, that's basically what's happening with the, with the motor in our models is during that off period, the motor is still turning and therefore creates a small charge of electricity that the decoder reads back from the decoder. So this is back electromotive force. And so the reason this is relevant, we go back to CV215, is because we can adjust the decoder for matching the track voltage. So that that way, if the decoder is expecting 16 volt pulses, there's not really a way to measure that without adding in a whole bunch of expensive components. And that's one thing we're trying to do is keep the cost of the decoder down. But... So what we're doing is we're telling the decoder to expect 14 volts on the rails. And so the decoder then does its internal back EMF calibration and says, okay, well, based on 14 volts on the rails, my motor should create a back EMF of say, we'll say 14 millivolts during that off period of time at speed step 10 or something. And so when the decoder is actually seeing say 12 volts on the rails, and the decoder in, at speed step 10 is actually feeding back 12 millivolts, 
the decoder will then increase that duration of that pulse until it sees the 14 millivolts it's expecting. And so by hard coding this in the original tsunami, there were some cases where you may have had a little bit of a less than satisfactory startup or took a little bit extra tweaking in some of the other CVs. And so by doing this, we can now reduce the, the back EMF expected by the decoder and therefore consequently slow it down. So CV215 is, is uh, measured as, uh, let's it's, the default value is 160, which represents 16.0 volts. Um, so if you take that and set it equal to your track voltage, or you, know, you can even reduce it and go a little lower. So if, let's say if you have a 13 volt system, uh, instead of setting it at 130, set it at 120. So the decoder is actually expecting a little less. And therefore, when you go to speed step one, your locomotive is going to move, move more slowly and more smoothly as opposed to an overpowered jump start as it's trying to overcompensate for a back EMF voltage it's not actually going to physically get. Okay. So hopefully I helped illustrate that one a little bit. And so that's one of the, that's step one. And then step two is CV211. And basically think of it as a percentage zero to 255 equals zero to 100%. And what this is, is it's called low speed compensation. And what this does is this helps uh, basically alter that PWM signal a little bit to help compensate for sticky gear drives or cogging in the gears or any other type of thing like that that potentially could cause erratic or, or hesitation in slow speed. And so this helps try to smooth that out a little bit more so that your motor, your motor moves more smoothly, especially at the slower speeds. Um, and so just adjusting those two will go a long way. Um, with the previous generation, we had to adjust CV209 and CV210, and then there was uh, CV212, which is uh, back EMF compensation determines the percentage of back EMF compensation. And, and you know, I'm not an engineer, so 209 and 210, I don't know exactly how those fit into the motor control loop equation, but it's a mathematical equation that's doing measuring and adjusting the PWM. And I don't know how to, I don't know exactly how those fit into there. And if I don't know it, there's probably a lot of people who have no clue and that's fine. And, but that's where we've taken these and tried to help make them a little easier by giving those two big CVs to help uh, allow the user to adjust those to get some really fine, smooth, you know, smooth, slow motor control without having to go in and read a whole section on how mathematical equations are done in binary. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Well, making the changes you suggested to uh, 215 and then 211, all of a sudden these engines became manageable. They ran, well, there was an interim step after I made the the two changes you recommended, I thought, okay, I've, I may have impacted how the dynamic digital exhaust is going to react. So I'll just reset the uh, DDE. So I went through the through the process there and set the no load, set the uh, you know 
25 speed step load <laughs> and the sound was just weird it reminded me of driving a Volkswagen in uh, San Francisco where you're constantly downshifting and the motor noise and stuff's coming up and I went wow this is weird so as I was slowing down one of these locomotives it got to about five speed steps and when I shoved it to speed step four just going down on an NCE hammerhead you know one speed step and it just locked up and I went wow that somebody hit the emergency brake so then I took it to zero and hit speed step one boom jumped up to five you know what would be normally five and I'm holy cow this can't be right so I uh, went well let's go to CV8 and do a reset so I did uh, CV8 at 8, de-energized the system for about 30 seconds, plugged it back in, got the, what is it, 12 flashing lights? Or some about series 16. Of, okay, got that. And all of a sudden the sound gets really loud. And But I hit one speed step. And it's not the smoothest thing in the world, but it's not a jump to five. So I uh, put it on the test track with, Decoder Pro and went through the uh, all of the uh, CVs again because I print out the CVs and when I got done with that this thing is just like a hot knife through butter it is smooth the uh, on acceleration and deceleration the sound is realistic the, the speed of the locomotive itself is no longer erratic. So I do the second locomotive, apply the 2CV, uh, 211-215 changes, and recalibrate it. It runs fine. I didn't have to do a CV-8 at 8. So I consisted them, didn't hook them up, but put them on flat track, and just started going up through the speed steps and they're almost dead nuts on now. Smooth up, smooth down. I think I did have to uh, do a little tweaking to one of them up, uh, on CV5, but or 6 rather. But I took that CV211-215 and am walking my way through, because I don't know, I've got maybe 14 or 15 Tsunami 2s now. Each time I do that, and then I go back through. They're even, if they were smooth before, then all of a sudden they become smoother now. And the sounds replicated when I go coast, slow down, uh, so forth, is just dead nuts on. So maybe it was just something about the air quality here in New Orleans. But <laughs> boy, just making those two as I walk my way through. I went, wow, this is just like, you know, somebody smiling on these locomotives. You know, and that's one of the things that, that you know, kind of what we did when we re reinvented the hyperdrive into the hyperdrive 2 with the, the back EMF control and so forth. I mean, it's yes. beyond just simply making a few adjustments. But we, you know, for years it was always said a DCC decoder will make a great running locomotive run or a good running locomotive run great but DCC will not make a bad running locomotive run good. And so 
one of the things we had kind of gone out was to try to help improve, you know, things because not everybody has the, the, for lack of a better term, the, uh, the, well, I guess I don't even know what I'm going to say. The, the magic touch to make, you know, all these drives perfectly smoothed out mm-hmm. and take the time to tinker it out and find that, you know, that small little plastic burr on that gear that's causing this, the, the cogging. And so that's kind of where CV211 came into play was with so many different brands of models out there and so many different manufacturers, we wanted to make sure that we could help as much as we could with a decoder to allow a locomotive to run smoothly. And with the Hyperdrive 2, we felt that we accomplished that because we had a right, wide range of, of models from all the different manufacturers, from Bachman, you know, standard line all the way up to, you, you know, uh, down to, you know, starting like model power and things like that, all the way yeah. up to Athern Genesis and Kato. And we were able to uh, really smooth out all of those drives, regardless of the motor and the, the wear on it. And so, like you said, when once you calibrate a little bit of that, if you do have any of these cogging issues or if you have a motor that tends to pulse a little bit, there could be more that, at play because the decoder, like we were talking about, it's just turning power on and off. Yes. And that on and off power is based on what it's feeding back from the motor. And so if there's something say a tight gear or something like that, that's impeding the motor in a, you know, that's kind of where we'd look at the old power packs. There was things called pulse power. Yes. And those pulse powers were basically kind of adding a 12 to 14 volt millisecond pulse to bypass those sticky mechanisms. And that's why those became such a standard because with DC power locomotives, you didn't have that onboard ability to control a single motor. So it just was broadcasting basically a full uh, PWM type signal, but it was momentary pulses to help overcome those sticky mechanisms. And like I said, there's no feedbacks because you could have one locomotive on the track or six. And so because of that, that was about the best way to do it. But now with DCC, you've got individual control. And so once you get a, a locomotive running the way you want it, use that one as your master and match everything to it using all the speed steps, using the, the CVs we talked about today. And then that way, pretty much anything in your roster will run with anything else in your roster. Because if you set a, a locomotive and then you match a locomotive to it, and then you match another locomotive to the third one, mm-hmm. what ends up happening is you get copies of copies. And you know what they always say about that. You know, the, the, the deeper in the copies you get, the less uh, quality the, um, of the replication. And that's going to be exactly true because once you get about three or four models deep, if you continue the chain down the line, the first and the last one aren't going to run together at all. Ah, very good. Very good. I, uh, the last two, because I know one of the men on one of the forums had, Brand new locomotives. And he said they ran so badly, he said, I took the uh, manufacturer's motor out, which are recognized as high-quality motors. Mm -hmm. And he said, I replaced them with uh, Kato motors. And I I sent him a message. I said, why would you take, you know, XYZ locomotive that you just paid all this money for? He said, because of erratic... He said, nothing I did. 
smooth it out, which is what precipitated your and I's uh, conversation. And he said, because I'm thinking, like you just mentioned, are there gear problems? Is there some binding in the in the drivetrain somewhere? And he's mm-hmm. going, no, as soon as I changed the first one out to a, a, a Kato motor, he said it was just perfect. And I went, oh, okay. So I finished up a real old lifelike era Proto 2000 E9, put a Kato motor in, mm-hmm. reworked all the, the trucks, uh, went to a hex drive, got the A-line drive line and all that. And it's spur gears. And I matched it with a later run Proto. This is in the Walther's era. And it's got the redesigned frame, uh, better motor, and it's got helical cut gears in it. So okay. right away, there's just a vast difference in rolling resistance on these trucks. And I thought, okay, let me just set this up. Uh, I incorporated the, the changes to CV211 and 215. And then I went through the uh, DDE setup pro, uh, procedure. Put them on the track together because I wasn't having any idea how these two different vintages would run. Out of the box, they are within one speed step of each other. That's fantastic. All the way up to about 30, 30 speed steps, which on my small layouts is probably approaching 40, 45 scale miles per hour. And I went. Okay. And the DDE is just in sync with these locomotives. They're lugging together and so forth. And so I went, wow, dodged a bullet there because I was anticipating all kinds of perhaps genetic imbalance <laughs> due to the right. different vintages. but. I've done a blog posting I'll put up on Model Railroad Hobbyist uh, as soon as I get the uh, weathering done on them. But Jim uh, Lincoln mentioned how cathartic uh, it is just watching sometimes, just watching trains go around in a circle on your railroad. There is something satisfying about that. So I was planting today, and after my back started rebelling, I came up here and just put the Southern Pacific train on and watched it go around and I could just feel that tension just just melt away. Mention to the to the people because you clued me in on it, and that's the the growing video library you've got at the Soundtracks website on the decoders, and you're building some how tos in there. Yes. So what we're doing, we started this in the beginning of January. We're doing a weekly video series we're posting to youtube and then as we get time and 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 availability we're posting it on our website too but you can link directly to our youtube channel from our website at soundtracks.com but what we're doing is a weekly series because conversations with you conversations with chris and is in conversations over the phone we've started noticing that we're seeing similar questions or, or either misunderstandings or confusion about it, what a particular feature is and why you have it. Yes. And so what we did is we put to, we, we dedicated the time to put together these short little, uh, normally three to five minutes. There's a couple in there that creep into nine minutes. Um, but the idea is to give the uh, users some confidence and some level of understanding of what the feature is. For example, we did a, uh, one of the videos we posted either the beginning of February or the end of January, I forget exactly, but 
Um, it was on Steam Sound Selection, ended up being nine minutes and 50 seconds. But in that discussion, we talked about the 769 million different sound combinations of steam locomotives that you can make on that Tsunami 2 steam decoder. How many? How many? Seven, <laughs> 769 million. I, I was sitting there one day after I was talking to somebody <laughs> over the phone. And I thought to myself, you know, we, we have 63 whistles. We've got 10 exhaust chests. We've got 54 different bells. You've got um, 18 <laughs> dynamos. You've got 10 air compressors. You can select the type of fuel that's being used, uh, wood burning, oil burning, uh, hand shovel coal or auger fed coal. You've got articulated three cylinder with and without wheel slip, lifting or non-lifting type injectors, power reverse mat. And I started thinking to myself, you know, somewhat being a little bit of a math nerd, I sat there and thought to myself, look at all these different combinations. And I sat there and did the math and came up with over 769 million combinations. I forget the exact number right off the top of my head, but 769 was where I stopped when I realized there was two commas behind that. <laughs> and I said, holy crap, because, yeah. and, and the, you know, and, and it may be some, and some of those choices you know, we've got our bells, for example, um, and this is a video I'm going to be doing here pretty soon, is a bell. If you look at our, at our list, you'll see uh, bell one, it may be a heavy brass bell or something like that. And then you'll see four uh, CV values, zero through four or something. And what that's telling you is that there's actually five recordings of that particular bell at different ring rates. Oh, really? And so... If you, if, you know, when you have a hand rung bell, for example, that hand rung is very slow and methodical, but you also hear the clapper come back on the brass as the bell swings back. And so the way we did our recordings with this is rather than having one, one CV like we did in the original Tsunami where you had, okay, this is the bell and then the number turns the ring rate well that wasn't adjusting the recording that was just simply playing the bell faster or slower so you didn't get that true hand-wrung feel like you do with the um with the new recordings on that where so you get that bell swing back okay with that there's i think 12 or, or 14 different bell choices and each of those have up to four or five different ring rates and there are a few of them that are nothing but air ringers. And so there's only two choices. Um, okay. And it kind of does the same with the diesel decoders. There's a couple of them, like the Graham electronic bell is only one ring rate because it's an electronic bell. Yeah. Um, and so there is only one. So the diesel has a fewer, has a fewer choices um, because there there's only one ring rate. And the interesting thing that makes me laugh about that one, but just really particularly is there's a bell-shaped speaker housing underneath the locomotive that plays a bell recording through that speaker, and that's what the new electronic bells are. Really? And so <laughs> it, it makes me laugh a little bit, especially when you hear it, because when you realize what it is, yeah, and you hear it, now you hear that, that recording because it's very, very consistent, and so therefore they don't have to deal with moving parts like the moving clapper and stuff like that, and that's why that was done. But it okay. made me wonder if we didn't miss a business opportunity here by approaching them first about giving the, hey, look, we got bell recordings. You want bell recordings? Yeah. <laughs> we could supply that. Wouldn't that be a hoot? New EMD, SD78s, now with Tsunami 2 bells. Exactly. 
So, <laughs> so anyway, getting back to that's, that's kind of where I come up with that number 769 million was I sat there and, and, and multiplied all that together to do your, you know, if I have this bell, this whistle and this air, uh, uh, exhaust chuff and this compressor, but if I change the compressor, then that's a whole nother different locomotive that could match. Yes. And so, uh, uh, with that, I mean, it's 769 million choices. I'm sure we can find a steam locomotive that, uh, settings that'll be right for you. And <laughs> yeah. so getting back to our video series, that, that video took nine minutes. Cause what I wanted to prove or show was that, look, this is all just one decoder called steam. And I had, I forget now, I want to say eight or seven, eight or 10 locomotives on the counter. And I ran a few of them and running them to just let you hear the differences, knowing that this is the same decoder with the same settings and how vastly different they are. I brought out my old, my, uh, Bachman 440 that I had converted to a Tsunami 2, um, and I actually did some detail work on it, and it's a pretty fun little project, but it sounds greatly different than the Atherin Challenger that we put on the video as well, and as they should, sound vastly different, but the really cool thing is some of the features that kind of got me doing that 440 was like I was talking about, you can select the wood load or an oil load, and so I selected the wood, and so when Fireman Fred quote-unquote shovels coal, He's actually throwing wood onto the wood burning fire. And you can actually hear a little bit of a different recording yeah. because it's not just a standard fire. You hear a little of the wood crackling as the door, as the firebox door is open, as he's throwing wood onto it. So it has all that, that ability to give you that unique feature. So if somebody's modeling an older Shea that's a wood burning, there's a great opportunity to make that sound a little different. So it'll help identify that locomotive as a wood burner because you'll hear that unique difference. So that's kind of some of the, the points of what we're doing these YouTube videos for. And we're going to be doing as many as I can. I'm trying to get them posted once a week um, because that way we can keep the, the interest level up. We can get the information out and also keep, you know, keep it from being too terribly long because, you know, I tell people over the phone, somebody will call up and they'll say, so what's the difference between Tsunami and Tsunami 2? And my first question is always, how much time you got? Yeah. And the reason is, and I'm not trying to be just a smart guy there, but the reason I say it that way is because I give an hour-long clinic uh, when we do trade shows and stuff like that that are just highlighting the differences between the Tsunami and the Tsunami 2. Um, you know, in years past, we've given uh, Soundtracks Academy and uh, – you know, training for our dealers and we have them for two and a half, three days and we don't get a chance to cover everything. Now, granted, part of that is because we're also in some cases teaching guys how to use their DCC systems or program a CV for the first time. And there's a little bit of a delay in that. But still, when you've got a captive audience like that and we still can't cover everything, it, it kind of goes to show just exactly how many improvements we've made over the decoder from what we had in the past. And part of that was because we wanted to make sure that the decoder gave people a reason to upgrade. It wasn't just a, oh, well, okay, well, we, they just rehashed it and they just put everything on the same, on the same decoder. And it's like, right. well, no, it's a lot more than just sound selection. And so these YouTube videos are really going to get into the depth of it. And like I said, there's a, there's a lot of topics that we can cover we can probably go a year to two years and, and never repeat the same subject matter. Um, you know, granted, we're covering, like I said, short, short videos. 
So one of the newest, one of the ones we posted not too long ago that actually published it in our ad at the Model Railroad Hobbyist magazine was about the reverb. And the reverb settings on our decoder now, we had reverb in the original Tsunami, but you couldn't really get a true depth of tone. Well, I guess let me rephrase that. It You couldn't get as deep a tone as you can now with the Tsunami 2 because you can have settings now instead of just a simple adjacent reverb off of a adjacent surface now, you actually can get a true echoing effect. The delay and the uh, settings have a lot wider range, and the processor now is able to do a lot more with the sounds than the previous generation could. And so with that, we just kind of briefly overview, hey, look, here's, here's a feature, and this is kind of how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, play around with it. And so we, uh, we take the uh, reverb, and you can... Uh, determine the percentage of that reverb for each individual sound effect. So in the video, we take reverb, we do a light reverb and a heavy reverb and a deep echo applied 100% to the whistle or the horn so that you can kind of hear the differences on how it changes. But again, you can use those sounds to do anything you want with the decoder because it's got that flexibility and that that, uh, those adjustments built in so that you can make the decoder sound however you like. And when I said 769 million, I'm not talking about reverb or volume settings. I'm just talking about sound selection. Okay. Well, and coincidentally enough, the the first video that I watched on YouTube when when you told me about them was the one on reverb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think I just like the sound of a whistle, whether it be steam or whether it be a Leslie Five Chime echoing. And oh yeah, reverberating, and so I, you know, got a locomotive and went into Dakota Pro and started playing around with it. No, it's 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 an incredible impact. Now, how many toilet flush options do I have? <laughs> well, you have one toilet flush sound, but if you want that to echo in the canyon, guess what? The Tsunami processor will allow you to do it. Ah! Oh, gosh, give me the double bean burrito echo. Oh, that's funny. I, when I was showing that to my wife, she goes, it's a what? The big thing to point out is now this is more of like a pneumatic toilet flush like you would see on an airplane toilet. It's not sure. the typical one you see in your house. Right. And so you don't have to worry about it swirling around and taking a long for it to go. So you don't have to worry about Fireman Ed and his... Uh, indigestion or anything <laughs> or the door slam because he's out hurling right <laughs> oh, <golly. laughs> oh yes i uh each new locomotive is a challenge i like it um <laughs> and you know that's one thing that's been really fun for me especially being a modeler myself is because during the development process um, being interim, you know, integral to the development and helping work with the engineers to make sure that the feature works the way we as the sales team and marketing team wanted it to at, based on customer feedback, the wheels in my brain kept turning. I would say, ooh, this would be a cool feature to put in blah, blah, blah locomotive or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, for example, one of the things I, on my own layout, you know, I model Missouri Pacific, which did not have a lot of dynamic brake equipped locomotives. That's right. And so 
you know, one of the settings that we have in the Tsunami 2, of course, every sound effect has its own volume control, as it did in the original Tsunami. But where the Tsunami 2 excels is that we've also got, like, say, and then I'll use this in context of the dynamic braking, is that we can have the dynamic brake volume to zero. We can take the dynamic brake, and when it's activated, it can actually take the prime mover and drop it to idle because there's no reason to be running in notch four when the uh, when the locomotive when the train or the engines are di- are braking downgrade, and so it'll drop to idle if it's part of a group of consist of locomotives that has dynamic brakes and the and the user uses them. Okay. Well, here's where it gets really fun: is that in the Tsunami two, we implemented a low and a high dynamic braking where the low dynamic braking will basically just create the sound effect and adjust the prime mover. But, it, but then when you go into high, it will actually implement a third braking rate in CV116 that will then slow the train down to about, oh, so 10 miles an hour or so, about speed step eight. And the, where, this, where this comes into play is when you implement that high dynamic braking, you don't have to worry about that non-dynamic brake equipped locomotive not functioning because you would set CB116, the braking rate, to match. And so when you hit the brakes, the decoder and the locomotive would behave as it normally would in the real world, drop the prime mover to idle. And if it was implementing a braking rate, then you don't have to worry about that one locomotive just spinning the wheels as the other three or four or whatever are dragging it around mm-hmm. trying to stop the train. So you get that more of the uh, more realistic effect of the group of locomotives actually working together as if it were a single locomotive. Cool. And so this is just where some of the fun things have come into my mind uh, just during the development. And all this stuff is is stored up here. And if if uh, if the customer doesn't necessarily ask directly about it, it may not necessarily be number one question to ask when you come see us at a trade show or call us on the phone but those are the reasons why i've been pushing to do these videos and and finally got the ability to start doing them is because little things like that maybe a casual uh, uh, user or somebody who hasn't been around railroading wouldn't necessarily know to do and nothing no fault of theirs but it's you know there's a lot of of things that I have to admit, I've learned over the years being in the industry now as far as how trains work, how railroading works and and engineer control and stuff like that. And so, you know, there's a lot of cool new things that I've implemented into my operations on my layout that the Tsunami 2 really helps address, especially since we had railroaders on staff that were contributing to it. So we wanted to make sure that the feature worked prototypically, but then my voice came in to make sure that it wasn't too complicated for the average user to figure out and operate. Oh, excellent point. Yeah, if it can be the greatest thing in the world, and if it takes a, a, a master's degree in electrical engineering to figure it out, you may have missed part of the market. Uh, exactly, and that's what we didn't want to do was to make it overly complicated. And that's one thing that I've heard over the years that that people really love our products because we do make it easy to use. You don't have to have, you know, a sound engineer degree to go out and, and operate things. And that's kind of why we, we put all those sounds on the one decoder is so that you don't have to spend an hour or more in front of a computer, you know, picking sounds and downloading this and, you know, Oh wait, they didn't finish this particular feature. So they have to upgrade their decoder because 
you know, XYZ didn't finish the software when they were had it. And so we, we, you know, take pride in trying to make sure that we finish the decoder fully and include all the features we can possibly do um, before we release the product and make sure it works. Um, trust me, when we, I've sat there doing these testing manuals uh, from the engineering department that are an inch and a half thick, and we take every CV and program it to every value to make sure, A, we don't break it, B, it does what it's supposed to be, and C, doesn't change something inadvertently because somebody forgot something in the code. It can be very mind-numbing and cumbersome, but at the same time, it, it's a way that we know that you're not going to experience problems in the field because we didn't do our homework right. On your website, didn't you announce a uh, an upgrade to a different uh, an improvement within the yes. basic programming? And, well, not necessarily the basic programming. So here's kind of what happened. Um, and this is the exception to the rule. This is the first time in my time here that we've gone and changed anything in the firmware. Okay. Um, this is on diesel decoders. What we did is we updated it. Um, when we were adding the turbines and gensets to the decoder, okay. um, the, the prime movers on those locomotives do not work the same way a traditional eight-notch eight uh, locomotive does. Okay. And so... They had to reinvent basically how the throttle notching and how the control of the locomotive worked. And in doing so, the engineers had actually found a little bit of a better way of, of writing the code so that the processor and, and so forth was a little bit more efficient. And in doing that, it helped the decoder run better. Now, externally, you and, you and I will never see that difference. Okay. But we're adding a few sounds to the, pro, to the decoder. So we decided, okay, well, we're, we obviously have to differentiate these from the original because we added the new Tier 4 GEs, which apparently is getting really re good reviews. I've heard from a few people that they're going and fixing their scale trains and intermountains uh, sound units with Tsunami 2s because our Tier 4 sound is so much better. But um, but the uh, but we added the, the GE sound to the the tier four to the GE, we added the Baldwin and others with the, the UP gas turbines and the gensets. So okay. we already had a sound set change. So we had to differentiate it somehow so that somebody could go into the store, know that they're getting the updated version, especially if they're looking for a genset or turbine or, or whatever. So we decided, okay, well, what other things, what other small little tweaks can we make to help improve the product? And, you know, a couple of things we did is we added a new, a uh, couple new horns. Um, there's a, the new uh, RS3K. So the Burlington Northern fans will have that unique distinctive horn on there. Um, we added an S3LR uh, from Leslie, which is a very popular uh, uh, air horn sound. So that that's going to be a very welcome addition as well, because a lot of those three chime horns in the, uh, in the eighties and you know, seventies, eighties and nineties, uh, were of that Leslie class. And so this really gives some options there. We had the S three L, but now the R shows the reverse note and it's a slightly different tone. Um, so we added a few other sound effects. We also added in the ability to have a modern air dryer versus an older poppet valve, uh, pretty much uh, most locomotives post 95 ish, uh, were going with an air dryer system. It was a little more efficient than the typical ticking poppet valve. And so 
with that, with a lot of the modern stuff, especially like the SD seventies and, and things like that, people were wanting to hear that air dryer sound. And so with a small CV change, now you can switch between a poppet valve and an air dryer. Um, we also added a, um, a, uh, uh, my brain just went blank. Um, the, the sound of a auxiliary HEP pup motor generator sound in, in addition to a uh, selectable between that and the, uh, steam sound, uh, steam, uh, steam generator. Okay. So in function 20 with the original tsunami, I'm sorry, with the tsunami twos, it would turn on the steam generator sound. So if you have an FP, uh, 45 FP sevens or anything like that, yeah. FP forties you have that steam generator on there and there's a little bit of a dis- you know, unique sound to it. Well, F 59 PHIs have, uh, uh, HEP pup motor, which is running the, the generator and HEP is head end power. So it's running the electrical systems on your passenger train. And, uh, so now since it's usually one or the other, we added that in. Um, so you can switch between the two. So if you're modeling a locomotive that doesn't have either of them, then it's irrelevant to you. But if you're modeling a, an F-59 PHI now, you'll have that uh, pup motor HEP generator now that you can have running in the background separately from your prime mover sound. Okay. Uh, one other th- little thing that we, uh, or I'm sorry, let me add one other uh, sound effect we added. And this one was approached to us by one of our customers actually and sent a few links and we, we get, were able to get some recordings and we added it in. But there's a prime electronic bell and if anybody's familiar with this thing, the Alaska Railroad had them on a few locomotives. And I know there were some other instances, but my brain is failing me right this second. Um, but it's it's a very annoying eh, eh, eh sound <laughs> as opposed to a traditional ringing yes. that we hear on a bell. But it's very distinctive. And so we added that into the bell selection now. So you've got an extra bell. Um, and then the last thing that's really highlighting the external changes that you and I would see um, with this is the uh, there is an option to pitch shift the prime mover sound and this oh. will take this will take the prime mover and slightly shift the pitch up or down so you could have eight to ten locomotives all with the same decoder the same prime mover and no two of them will sound alike because you'll shift them by just a few cents each way. Yeah. And this gives you that ability, again, to take one step away from having to download uh, different rosters and so forth to make a locomotive sound different. You've got it built into there. And this is over and above the tools that we've already included in, with the equalizer. Uh, we talked slightly about reverb. You can have a small percentage of it applied to the prime mover, so you get a little bit of a different tone um, and other things like that. So by shifting the pitch now, you can actually hear a little bit different because – I mean, in reality, you know, they do sound different, but they're all based on the same prime mover, the same recording. And the biggest thing that we're hearing as differences may be difference in maintenance schedules or, um, you know, if somebody's changed a, a manifold or something over the years. And so this helps give the modeler one extra tool to be able to unleash all of the features of the Tsunami 2 but without having to sacrifice the unique individuality of each of the prime movers. Okay, and that you included that uh, on the Atherin, that pitch shift on uh, one of the choices on CV-123 for the prime mover on the STP-40Fs, I believe. 
not not on that one because that one has actually two different uh, six forty five turbo recordings. Oh, okay. And actually, okay. I take that back. It has three um, because again, you know, where where does the library stop? Because yeah. we've got multiple recordings of all of these different locomotives, and they all fundamentally sound basically the same. And out of a giant speaker, I will say, you know, everybody will hear distinct differences between each of them. But when you start getting down to a one inch speaker or, or smaller, you, those distinctions become a lot less uh, prevalent. And so when you start having a library of seven or eight different S, uh, 645 turbo prime movers, we could build a decoder with just 645 turbos. And it's like, well, you know, d is, is that something that would sell independently or, or you know, or does, does do customer are customers happy with just the one? And that's kind of the thing we have to weigh back and forth because we also have to look out for our retailers because if we have too many part numbers, then they end up inevitably not having the one that you go into your store looking for. Um, but that's part of why we have that is because the fundamental sound of those prime movers, all those 645 turbos sound exactly the same. You know, you may hear a little bit of a slightly different pitch of the whine of the turbo mm -hmm. or something like that. And that's why we incorporated the pitch shift into the V1.2 versions um, that are now shipping and have been shipping exclusively since October. Okay. So those, then they're marked with stickers identifying. And then there was one other thing I did forget. There is a uh, uh, straight to idle function on the new 1.2 where uh, on the original uh, uh, Tsunami 2, we had a straight to eight where you could push F10 and it would immediately bring the prime mover all the way up to notch eight. And that does a couple of things. It gives your switching crew the ability to hit that and then release as they're pulling their cuts of cars in and out. So you can hear it rev up and go back down. But I also use the case that you can use that for your hostler because he can push and he can do load tests in the engine house if he doesn't have any locomotives to move around. So you can do load tests by running the prime mover straight to eight. Okay. Um, but now on F-19, you have straight to idle where as you're coasting to a station or a depot or a signal, you can enable the F-19, your prime mover will straight drop straight to idle, and then you can use your throttle to independently bring your locomotive to a stop. And never once do you lose throttle control of your locomotive. Cool. So... There's a lot of cool things. Like I said, we give an hour long clinic. I think you and I've been talking for almost an hour now and we've just barely scrapped, scraped, yeah, I can't even speak anymore. Scraped <laughs> the surface on, uh, on, uh, you know, some of the cool intricate features that we've got built into the tsunami twos. Um, this week's been a little rough. Uh, we, uh, we lost a few weeks ago. We lost our tech support, uh, uh, representative. He decided to, uh, move back home to Oklahoma to be closer to his family so unfortunately, Justin isn't working with us anymore. Uh, so we just hired a, a new gentleman by the name of Josh. He's in training. And so this week, in addition to my normal duties and, and handling most of the tech support questions and calls, has also been trying to get him crash course trained on Tsunami, Tsunami 2, Ekonami, soundtracks, what is DCC, how does it work, and so forth. And... So at the end of the day, over the past two weeks, my brain is so frazzled. I get home and turn on a hockey game and I just stare at it and just like, <laughs> okay, this is good. And unless I'm playing, that's pretty much what I'm doing at night. Wow. That's so, right, because you're playing what? Semi-pro hockey? 
Uh, not quite, but I appreciate the compliment. Okay. No, they're, they're, I've, I've been playing uh, some adult rec leagues, but I'm playing in some of the top levels here in town. Um, with There are some guys that have played in uh, uh, semi-pro and, and juniors and stuff like that. So it's a pretty good mix here. Uh, definitely gives me some fun and keeps me uh, up and about and active. Um, but with that and just kind of work over the last few weeks, my brain's been kind of fried. I really haven't touched much of my own trains in quite some time, actually. I, I'm, I'm going to be embarrassed to admit how long it's been, so I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> hey, we've all been there, George. Don't worry about that. We've all been there. <laughs> so, like I said, you know, part of the day I'm out there planting dwarf mondo grass until my back kicks out, and I go, I think I'm going up in the train room. There you so, go. So, anyway, well, I will not keep you then. Uh, you probably need to start decompressing so you can be back at work tomorrow. Well, I'm flying out to Denver this weekend. We've got the uh, Rocky Mountain Train Show in Denver this weekend coming up. So oh. actually, I'm going to finish packing and uh, get everything ready because I fly out tomorrow. So I'll head over to the center set up and uh, we'll see Chris and the guys up at the train show this weekend. Okay. So, uh, Looking forward to that. And then I'll get back home for two weeks and then we'll fly out to Chicago area going to Lombard for the O-Scale meet to kind of really show off the the 4-amp TSU 4400 and kind of what it can do for the O-Scalers. Because uh, that's something we haven't really been, you know, showing off well because there's so many things, especially HO being the most popular. And of course, it's a little smaller and easier to transport when we go from show to show. Sure. Uh, O-Scale tends to feel a little left out. So we're going to the O-Scale meet. We're getting some O-Scale models we'll bring and, and set up. And that's coming up March, I think, 17th and 18th. Um, so yeah, it's it's going to be a busy month. And then we'll be home for a little bit. And then we'll start up a little bit more of the trade show season, do some uh, some store visits, club visits, and things like that as we head into summer. Okay, Doc. All right, then. Go get some rest. <laughs> Sounds good. All and, right, uh, buddy. Thanks for the time. We'll look forward. Hey, you're welcome. We'll look forward to the next time we get a chance to chat, and uh, you know, we'll come up with a new subject between the two of us. All right, George. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Paul. Take All care. All right, night. Hello, this is actor Michael Gross, and you're listening to the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. All right, in this segment, we're going to be speaking with Scott Lupia, who is the force behind KV Models, like K is in Killer, V is in Valley, KV Models. And I ran across KV Models uh, doing a search for some mirrors and uh, windbreaks on eBay. And... Saw these etch metal uh, mirrors, windbreaks, and bottom. And while I was there, I went looking for just other parts that he had. And I started seeing some really uh, neat stuff that I had not seen elsewhere. The one that really caught my attention was the uh, grills and shutters for CF7s for upgrading the basic Atherin ready-to-run unit. So... Scott, how long have you been doing this? Uh, let's see. Um, it's probably, well, I, I officially started um, back in November, 
Although I've been for a while now, I've been experimenting with etched parts and um, sort of building building a line with that. Actually, KV model started without me even really trying to start anything or even thinking about it. It just sort of happened one day. But um, I mean, it, it's been a few years now. I've been developing these parts, and you know, I just just recently actually turned it into something for mass consumption. Okay. Now, do you do the the etching the work yourself? Um, unfortunately, no, I, okay. uh, I have a very good, uh, contractor out, um, in the UK who handles all that stuff. Um, well, one thing I have learned is, is, um, it, it's very difficult to, the learning curve on things like that is, is so great and so steep that sometimes it's just best to let the experts do what the experts do. Oh, I, I understand that completely. So how how many parts do you have cuz i looked the other day again and you had a lot more items listed than the first time i saw your site uh currently i'm probably around 75 uh different sets um we're always expanding I mean, every every month i have a new order coming back uh from my supplier and um you know, we, we, we expand a lot just because there's really so much that needs to be done. Um, currently around 75. I think okay. that was the last count. Well, what's been, you know, driving your process for choosing the parts? I mean, I've never seen anyone doing the CF7 grills and interior shutters. That's, that's very unique. How'd that come about? Um, I... I, I am a, I'm a rabid modeler when okay. it comes to doing this stuff. I mean, I, I'm all over the place. I, I'm primarily an N-scale modeler, but, I mean, you can't deny that HO scale is really – and I, I don't want to get into a big war with everyone, but the HO scale really is the best scale for uh, modeling, uh, it's just really getting into the nitty-gritty of models. So um, yeah, I, I, I do a lot of locomotive detailing in HO scale and you know, I, I'm pretty random. I mean that the CF seven that got me going with that set was, I picked up a mid South uh, CF seven. I, I used to travel a lot with my parents um, years ago when my father was still alive okay. and you know, we, we went down to Biloxi, Mississippi for a small vacation. And you know, there I'm seeing these, these really neat gray uh, mid South locomotives just drilling. And next thing you know, I have an affinity for the mid South. Um, I, I'm an anthracite railroad modeler. I'm, I'm an Erie Lackawanna modeler. So I, I'm really all over the spectrum with what I enjoy. And, you know, if, if something catches my fancy, I want to model it. So, you know, I, I may see a locomotive that really has nothing to do with my Erie Lackawanna, which is what I model, but you know, if it catches my eye, I'll pick it up. And then, yeah, I, I just feel compelled to, to do these etched parts. Anything, you know, anywhere where I can improve a locomotive with etched parts, okay. I'll do it. And that they that's really how my line has expanded. It's just um, parts that uh, I, I saw that need to be made for, for models I just decided to do. And, you know, a lot of the parts ideas have come from um, modelers that, you know, just like me, who, you know, reach out to me and say, you know, it'd be really great if you could offer this part 
And, you know, some of it's pretty far-fetched, but um, a lot of it, I look at it and I scratch my head and think, you know, why didn't I think of this? And, you know, it's, it should be done. And so that, that's really where everything has come from, um, to the, you know, up to this point. Okay. One of the other things that, that I noticed that made sense is you have a lot of parts groupings for switchers, like some of the early Alco units. And it's not just a fan grill, although you do have some fan grills, but it's associated parts so that you buy one of these sheets of etched metal parts. And you can do a lot of detailing to one of those locomotives. And I thought that is such a great idea. I mean, make the buying process and the modeling process easier. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, there's just, there's so much that needs to be done. I, I, I experimented, I, I've tried to put everything onto one set, but then, you know, I, I know, I kind of like buying what I need. Um, and okay. Just looking around at my, my table. I, I have apparently, I have a lot of stuff that I need cause I got a ton of stuff sitting here, but um, you know, it, it, sometimes it's frustrating when you have to buy something and you end up having to buy a lot of other things that come along with it that you'll never use. So I, I generally try to do like an a la carte approach to the model. So if, you know, if you, if you're going to model an SW nine or SW 1200, which is, that's kind of like the core product of, I, I started with the lifelike switchers. Okay. And I mean, you could go crazy with, with all the different parts I have, or if you felt like it, you could just do the basic grills and the basic stanchions. I mean, there, there's no limit to what, how little or how much you want to do. And, you know, I, I'm not looking to, I'm not looking to take everybody's money per se, you know, but, um, yeah, it's nice to offer a little something for everybody. So, it's, you know, if you want to go the the whole way, you can. Or if you just want to do a little bit, you can do that too. Okay. Well, the uh, the other thing that I had not you know seen available anywhere else were the E and F unit uh, adapter plates, where the railroads would have switched from the uh, old bulb to sealed beam units. You've got two different sizes available, and I yes. thought, well, this is this is neat. Yeah, again, that was um, that was a product that I needed. I, I forget what. Um, oh no, I know what it was now. Uh, I was doing a Seaboard Coastline. It was uh, an E6 for an article in Railroad Model Craftsman um, a few years back, and the engine had the twin seal beam headlight. And there was no way to model that. There, yeah. Nobody made that plate. So I, this was right at the beginning of my uh, my my etching, and now I'm looking at it, and I I, I was drilling styrene, you know, tin foil. I was using everything I could possibly find. Yeah. And you know, the next thing you know, I I just drew up this little plate, and you know, a couple of weeks it comes back, and now here's this little etched plate which has solved all of my problems. But the light doesn't seep through. You know, it's it's firm, it's strong because it's etched stainless, and it looks good since it's etched stainless. And uh, so you know, again, it's one of those things where well, if I needed this, I bet you other people need it, and other people did need it because I, I sell a lot of those. And uh, I'm actually going to revise that set. That's the other thing. Um, my sets don't usually stay the same. They they do change over time. I mean, you know, everybody. It, the more you do something, the better you get at it. And, okay. You know, I, I recently um, 
I, I saw something that I could do to improve those, those parts. So the next go around is going to be to improve them, throw a little more detail onto them. I'm still going to have a bunch of different sizes of plates in the little set, but um, they're going to get better. But yeah, that, um, that's a neat little part that uh, I really needed. And, uh, you know, turned out everybody else needed them too. Well, I took one off and plopped it into the uh, nose of a proto 2000 that I was remotoring and you know, put the LED behind it, and I went, boy, that is a mm -hmm. good look. I think I had to tweak the diameter just a little bit for the for the uh, proto, but that's that's not a big deal. Uh, mm -hmm. Ah, it was excellent. Uh, the mirrors that I purchased, very, very, f I'm going to say intricate, even though it's just a, you know, wind, uh, wind visor, especially the ones that simulate the mirror and the lower half of mm -hmm. it. Very, very delicate detail. Very impressive. Uh, Thank you. And then, you know, just a, a small number 80 pilot hole into the, into the side of the frame, and those babies slide in with some uh, super glue and ready to go. Uh, the challenge, I saw your Mid-South mid CF7. And I looked looked at it and I went, well, looks like he's used probably a saw blade, either maybe on a Dremel or by hand to go in there. And then I could see where you'd filed down the rivet detail on the outside. So I kind of winged it there. And uh, I've got two more to do. So I've already thought up a better way to, to do it. But I trial fitted them this morning for... I had a doctor's appointment, and mm -hmm. I like on the shutters that you can position them. You can either leave them closed, or you can position them open. I like yeah. the fact that they will flex just a little bit, and that pivot point, that axis that that is there, is so imperceptibly small that once you paint those, all you gonna, your eye is going to pick up is the shutter, and then the grill over top of it. So that is an incredible part, you know, because these are old, I think maybe even real product shells. So that, you know, they've got grab irons and stuff, but your, your girls there are going to really bring them up to a different paradigm of uh, detail. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, that's no, excellent work. The, what have you toyed around with for your future? as far as additional parts? Well, right now, currently I am, um, I have a few sets that are ongoing that, uh, I mean, I, every now and then I get actually more often than not, I, I get lucky and, um, I can get a set of artwork perfect on the first, first try without having to do revisions. I have others that I, I do multiple revisions to currently I have, um, a set that improves the appearance of the lifelike G8, uh, GP 18, um, that's, I, I'm, I love the Susquehanna railroad and for, for years they had their three GP 18s and, um, the lifelike engines are, they're really nice engines, but the shells just have these areas where, you know, they just, they could be improved. Okay. And this set is going to take care of that. Um, again, you know, the, the shutters, cause they, they have these, uh, the lifelike engines have these, these funky little, um, shutter and grill assemblies, which. 
they, they, they really perplexed me when I look at them. I guess, I mean, it's an old engine at, at the time they were pretty good, but, uh, you know, we, we can do a lot better with them now. And, uh, so the set I'm working on for that, we'll take care of that. Um, a lot of details around the cab. Uh, it, it corrects the, the look of the roof. Cause there's, um, there's this really strange looking cab sunshade that hangs off the side. There's a big track for that. Well, that cleans mm-hmm. all that up nicely. Um, it's, uh, I, am working on, I, I think I have the final set of revisions done. I I'll see in about, I'll know in a, in a month when I have parts in hand, but, uh, that should be coming out soon. Um, I've been working on a, a set for the, the, the venerable Athern blue box bay window caboose. Um, okay. it's an SP style caboose, nice bay window caboose, and it's not too far off from an eerie bay window caboose. Uh, so my set is basically an overlay set. You, you slap this onto the model and uh, you can turn it into an Erie Bay window caboose, which is kind of neat. I'm, I'm just about finalizing that. Let's see, what else do I have going on here? Oh, big news is um, I am going to be doing uh, details for GEs, big GEs, the U33s, U34CHs, which were a New Jersey transit engine. I grew up right. around them, love them. Right. U36s. Um, you know, the, the grills for that big gullwing radiator in the back, uh, right. radiator grids for inside, the, all the, the screens. I mean, this is – I'm really excited about this set because those U-boats are favorites of mine, and nobody has really done anything for them. So I think okay. that's really going to wake up the, the GE modelers out there. So far, um, I, I floated a little uh, – a very cryptic uh, post and picture on uh, my – uh, KV Models Facebook page, and uh, people seem to be really, really excited about the set, just like me. So, I'm really looking forward to that. I had a, I was doing a job for a guy. This is when we still lived in Phoenix. Uh, some SP locomotive, and he said, "I need wagon wheel antennas." And did the search, could not find. As I traveled uh, around, I would be dropping into hobby stores, see if I could find the. I think they were detail. West parts couldn't find them, so finally ended up buying somebody's wagon wheels. They were for passenger station luggage uh, carts, but they were the approximate diameter and filing the dickens out of them. And then, <laughs> lo and behold, I'm looking through your stuff, and there's a wagon wheel antenna. And uh, so I bought some of those because I've got. Uh, UP, uh, or I'm sorry, SP locomotives that uh, I have to go back and retrofit those too. Now, if, if we're playing around with suggestions on uh, parts, the a lot of people on the wagon wheels just had a single shaft, vertical shaft up through the through the middle. Unfortunately, the Southern Pacific had a tripod affair. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I tried, I've tried several different ways to make a tripod <coughs> and my next attempt will be using 30 gauge wire stripped of, of the insulation and coated with solder so that I can, it gives me the right visual mass and I can bend it and I can run it up through your uh, etching and then put the, uh, Oh, firecracker antenna on it that uh, SP used, but boy, we could use <laughs> some uh, some legs for that thing. 
Well, that's, you know, this is what I love about this because I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And a good friend of mine, Major Mike, he is an SP modeler and, yeah, he he'd love these things, and I I can picture them. So uh, I I actually, as you're speaking, I've got this set designed in my head. So uh, you'll okay. see that in about a month. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I love went, that idea. I Thank went you. Back. I've got a book by I think it was Richard Cortani. This goes back in seventies, and he was doing a series on the SP locomotives. And the first one were all the Alco PAs, and it's it's such a treasure because it shows all these locomotives with rooftop detail yeah it's mm. very hard to go oh, yeah. on one of the railroad sites or even just googling and get good slightly down roof detail shots so that's uh-huh. the only reason i know that the uh the sp used uh tri legs now the one that blew my mind even more than the grills for the uh cf7s were the baggage the overhead baggage racks for passenger cars. I have modeled, put together a lot of branch line, heavyweight sleepers, people in them, you know, windshades, all that stuff, screens. And I'm thinking, boy, this would drive me crazy to put these luggage racks in there. Where did that come from? Those things just look insanely detailed. They, uh, they are. Well, it, it's funny because um, I, I don't know why I decided to make them other than they're, they're just so cool looking. But uh, I have several of those in my garage. Um, my grandfather was a Lackawanna man. He worked for both grandfathers worked for the Lackawanna Railroad. And um, when they were retiring the old MU cars in the uh, early 80s, okay. he took a lot of stuff home from work with him. And I don't know how he, he used to commute on the train deadhead. I don't know how he got luggage racks home, but <laughs> I have about 30 yes. feet of luggage racks in my garage that we've been using for shelves ever since the eighties. And, you know, I'm, just, I'm looking at these things and they're so neat. And, you know, probably like maybe one out of 150 monitors would ever use them. But I, I just had the idea, you know, I could, I could make these, with etching, you, there's really no other way you could do them. Soldering wire together, styrene, I, I don't know, lasagna noodles, I don't know what, but um, etched metal is the best way to do them. So oh. I put together this little set and uh, you know, sure enough, there they are. I, I put some together and I put them in one of my coaches and man, you, you, can ne- you very rarely see them unless you're really trying, but it's so neat knowing that they're in there. Yeah, it's one of those yeah categories. You know it's in there. Nobody else can see it. I had a, <laughs> a friend of mine that in Phoenix, and the same guy that had me do the detailing on these PAs and put in sound decoders in them, he took, it was a Walther's baggage car, late model. Mm-hmm. So, was, And, of course, it had the baggage car interior. And he cut out envelopes to put in the mail slots. And he cut out all these little number nine envelopes and stuff in there because he had bought some pre-serve figures to put back in there to be postal workers. And we're going, are you crazy? If I pick up your car, which I would never do on a a Mm -hmm. layout, you like at his club, and if I turn it a certain way where I can look back 
through the door and I see these little white things in there. He said, but I know they're there. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I said, okay, yep. amen, good enough. So, yeah. <laughs> I tend to follow the uh, Alan McClellan of good enough. If it, if it can't yeah. readily be seen, let's invest our time in something that can. Yeah, I, uh, I I agree. I agree with that. That that is a great approach. I, I you know I spoke a little bit about how KV models came to be. Um, I I am not a businessman. I I mean I, I don't say I'm an artist, but you know model rarities that that it, that's art. It's what we do. It's not it's not crunching numbers. It, it's art. And um, you know I. I I am not, this is outside of my, my comfort zone, but a good friend of mine, uh, Brian Busey, he owns Eastern Seaboard Models. Uh, he does these incredible N-scale freight cars. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to do this without him. He, he introduced me to the world of doing these etched parts. He basically taught me how to do the artwork, um, set me up with the contractor. So you know, the first couple of sets I did, I'd, I'd email him the drawings, take a look at them, see if I made any mistakes. And he was kind enough to look it over and point out what I need to do differently. And, uh, and he, every step of the way, he's been really supporting my business. And, uh, you know, it's great to have uh, a friend who is in the business and can really help you grow your business. Cause I, I really couldn't have done this without him and, you know, his support. And I, I hope to be, you know, like Eastern Seaboard Models one day. I'm small now, but, uh, you know, hopefully one day I'll be, you know, one of the big guys like he is. But, man, it's good to have a friend like him. And uh, we all need a friend like Brian to, to help us out because, you know, that, that just, that's what got me going. And I wouldn't be where I am right now without his help. Okay. Well, yeah, so you do your own CAD work. That's correct. Okay. Good, because that gives you control. And what do you do? Send them a file, and they just download it into their machines for the cutting. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I, I send them the uh, the artwork in the format they need, okay. which is um, you know it, it's not like blueprints. It's not what I'm used to as you know as an architect. You know, with your with your your line drawings and you know plans and elevations. It's you send them basically layers, top layer, bottom layer, and they. I guess they, they do whatever they do with it. They turn, they, they print it out on the metal and then, you know, that etches from the top and etches from the bottom. So, you know, I, I learned what they're looking for, what their tolerances are because each, each metal thickness has its own specific set of needs, each kind of metal. So I, I like to use etched stainless. So, you know, 0.2 millimeter stainless is going to have different requirements than 0.008 millimeter stainless. Okay. So you know, it's getting getting the hang of you know what each metal thickness needs. It that took a while because you you can kind of push the envelope a little bit here or there with their tolerances, and uh, it takes a while to to get to learn what you can and can't do. And you know there is the whole trial and error aspect of it. <laughs> Sometimes you get something back that should have worked, but it didn't. So you you know you you adapt and you overcome. You're American made. You're like soundtracks. You're American-made, uh, <laughs> and like that. So, you know, there's more and more people paying attention to that. I mean, I understand that 
I'm going to pay more for an American-made product versus mm -hmm. something else. But that's okay. It's a choice I make because it it uh, helps American workers. So, and in this case, that's Absolutely. you. And like soundtracks, they they're manufacturing there in Durango, so it helps out some mountaineers up there. All right. <laughs> okay. Yep. All right, so you've got a web store. Do you have a web store at your website? Yes. Um, for we, we have two ways of, uh, of doing business. Um, the eBay store, which everybody seems to know about, um, you know, on eBay. It's uh, under KV Models. And I also have my website, uh, www.kvmodels.com. And you can purchase directly through my website, uh, Prices are a little lower on the website than on eBay, just mainly because of the, uh, you know, the eBay fees. Sure. And, uh, I can also, um, I do offer uh, free shipping above $25, every order above $25. So that, you know, there's, there's I, I hate, and this is, the, I know it's just economics is the way it works, but man, I, I hate when you, you go to buy something, you know, say $25 worth of stuff and, you know, now you're paying eight ninety five for shipping, and it's like, man, right. you know that it kind of gets up there. But it, you know, that that's something I can do that that helps out. It, I, I kind of like when, you know, there's twenty five dollars worth of stuff, and you're paying twenty five dollars. You're not going to pay, you know, thirty three ninety five because of the shipping or whatever. So we we do offer the uh, free shipping above twenty five dollars, and um, on kvmodels.com we have um, all of our N scale and HO scale items. Uh, photos of the actual sets, photos of the the sets in use. Um, they have a little uh, model gallery of uh, you know different photos I've taken of models, uh, dioramas, stuff like that too, just for some for some fun. Um, so that's that's something that's always going to be growing, and uh, that that's uh, that's that's my little baby there. It'll it's going to have a lot of information on it by the time I'm done with it. But uh, we're always growing, so you know, okay. if you don't see something right now, be patient. It's coming. Okay. Well then. So for checkout, you can use a credit card. Do you connect with PayPal or any of those? Yeah, it, it's a PayPal web cart. Um, if you have PayPal, great. You just use your PayPal account. If you don't, you just you pay by your credit uh, credit card through PayPal. So, you know, it, 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 it suits everybody, basically. It's not excluding anybody. Okay, excellent. I mean, you're making it easy to do business with you. Try. That's what. That's what life is about. Making it easy. Okay. <laughs> not fighting the. Not fighting it. Okay. So tell me, do you have a railroad at your home? Model railroad. Uh, I have pieces of a model railroad. I uh, I actually just we moved into the house I'm currently in last February. We've been here about a year now. Okay. And um, my old house. I, I knew what I was going to, I was going to take over the whole, it was just me there, the whole basement. I had this great Erie Lackawanna layout designed in N scale, early seventies. And then I went, I met my wife and, you know, next thing you know, that the basement is, you know, we're storage stuff down there. It's a small house. So, uh, so I, I knew I wasn't going to build the layout there, but you know, I, I'm, I'm a builder. I love doing scenery. That's my thing. Okay. So I, I started building pieces of my future layout. So right now I probably have about 
maybe 13 feet of the current layout done different se- different segments and um yeah i'm just getting ready to start building some bench work down there so i can start connecting all of the the little scenes i've made but uh it current currently i have bits of a railroad <laughs> okay and it's in scale correct that is correct i'm an in scale modeler uh okay. like i mentioned i'm a I'm a scenery guy. I mean, I love detailing diesels and HO, but you know, there's just something about doing end scale scenery. That just, that that's, that's where my heart is. Well, I've done HO for 40 years because we always lived in places with basements or in Phoenix, I had a HO scale outside. Mm-hmm. We had a big yard and had to sacrifice some fruit trees, but cause it doesn't rain that much. As long as you protect mm-hmm. the, the stuff from the UV rays, especially in the summer, it doesn't mm-hmm. mind. You know, you just carry the electronics in and stuff. But here in Louisiana, you know, obviously it's a swamp. So there are no basements. So I'm in a 13 by 14. We've got four bedrooms and don't need them. So I'm in one of the bedrooms. And the grandiose 25, 30 foot long trains with three motors, you know, pulling yeah those days are gone past right now Mm -hmm. but what i've done just going back to what you said i just detailed the dickens out of it with the yeah with the trees the rocks the weathering the buildings have all been weathered so you can get a lot of pleasure out of a small railroad i think i heard it mentioned on one of the uh forums as the one one town slash one city model railroad. And mm-hmm. so that's about what we've got here. But uh, we're talking also talking about another relocation to north of Dallas. And mm-hmm. I've even our youngest daughter who's helping find, you know, houses on Zillow or one of these other places over there. Even she goes, and this has a nice train room for dad. So she's <laughs> she's been inculcated with the with the criteria that this house has got to have a much larger space for dad's model railroad. You know, when you have the blessing of, when you have the blessing of your family, that just makes it so much better. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, when I got into the hobby, uh River Rossi had great passenger cars. Their locomotives were you know, laughable, but you were Blue Box, Athern, everybody else was kind of like toy train set stuff. Mm-hmm. So in scale back then, there was in scale, but it was on par with paperweights. Now, yeah. I mean, for a number of years, I worked for a hobby shop after I retired from my career. And I was always impressed at the level of Avocado, uh, then Genesis got into it. All these people coming out with incredible in scale. So at a show, I think it was back in February, Chris Palomares and I were there and went by scale trains to mm-hmm. uh, just say hello to Shane. And I looked at their in scale stuff and I was blown away. They have grab yeah. irons on them. Grab yeah. irons for heaven's sakes. So I thought, okay, what would it take to sell all this HO stuff and convert <laughs> to end scale? So, but yeah, there's a lot of good stuff happening in end scale. 
Yeah, and scale has really, uh, it, it's really come a long way. And, um, you know, I, I've been, anybody that knows me, all of my friends that, uh, you know, I, I speak to a lot, they, they, you know, they would know, okay, what, you know, it's Tuesday, what, which model is, or which scale is Scott modeling it today? You know, oh, it's Friday. What's he modeling today? I, I was all over the map and, um, yeah, I, I always, end scales my it you know i I should have known right from the get-go this is where i'm going to end up but um yeah i i've already i've always fought the ho scale bug just because there's just so much you can do and for me sound in sound in a locomotive is that that's where it's at i mean i'm I'm a locomotive engineer i this is what i hear all day long and i just i love it all the little sounds and you know the horn is just right the bell all the you know what the EMD five sixty seven prime mover. It mm-hmm. that's where it is for me. I I you know I, I it's just that is where it's at. And HO scale you had that for the longest time. But then all of a sudden Atlas comes along and they offer an Alco S two and N scale with sound. And by God, it sounds great. It's fantastic. It's Moke sound equipped. It's five thirty nine T is absolutely perfect. So. It, it was when Atlas came out with their S2 with sound. I I knew okay, I'm going ahead with this end scale thing because uh, now it's now it's here. It's got the sound. It's got what I want. I can do this, and you know here I am now with all these sound equipped little end scale engines, and uh, we're building the layout. So yeah, it's end scale is uh, end scale is here. It, it it really has arrived. Yeah, when they came out with Economy, and they had the small versions. Uh, Jerry Rowley, guy in Phoenix, he used to work for Litchfield Station. You know, he came mm-hmm. up under uh, Bruce Petrarca. And he did a lot of the installs for the store. I did some. We had another guy did some. And he brought in these, uh, I, it was an SD70, so, and I don't remember who the manufacturer was. He says, here, put this on the uh, test track and tell me what you think. So I put it on. And dialed in the number and all of a sudden this thing you know the prime mover started winding up and then went into idle and people in and around where the test track the cash register were just stopped and looked over because i don't see an ho locomotive over there and i went yeah exactly. you're right i said it's only the end scale he used a uh, appropriate size sugar cube he had to mm-hmm. mill them a friend. But I was totally blown away with what you could do in a hood on N-Scale. So yeah. it's, uh, you had mentioned in one of our conversations that you use a lot of sugar cubes. I am a big fan of sugar cubes. And now you've got uh, some large sugar cubes that have been around for a while that when you close couple them and wire them properly, especially if you've got a tsunami so that you've got access to the uh, graphic equalizer, you can get a daggone uh, sub 200 hertz growl out of these puppies. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. So Yeah, it's amazing now. Do you belong to a club? Or is it just no, you in the I, house? Uh... It's just me in the house right now. I, uh, I I do travel every now and then. I'll stop by some of the local clubs, see what's going on. But uh, I I'm doing my own thing right here right now. Um, I 
the, between uh, my job and anybody that works for a railroad, you know, understands the demands of being a railroader. You know, between my that job, uh, my family, we've we've got a little little girl on the way. She'll be here in about a month. Wow! And you know, KV models, and you know, I, I got my hands full here. So going going you know, being a part of a club is just not something I can do right now. Okay. Unfortunately. All right. Well. Okay, let's go. So, what do you do for the railroad? Which railroad, and what do you do for it? I work for New Jersey Transit right here in uh, northern New Jersey. Okay, and I'm a locomotive engineer. I mean, it's my my dream job. I I don't. I mean, you know, I don't know how many kids uh, say they you know, they want to be a train engineer when they're kids, and then you know they go become an accountant or something like that. There's nothing wrong with being an accountant. So obviously, I. I was an architect before I became an engineer. And, uh, you know, one day I just decided I, uh, I want to do something that I love and man, best thing I ever did was hiring out in New Jersey transit. It's, uh, you know, that we get a lot of bad press cause it's, it's been, it's been a rough eight years or so here, but, uh, man, there's, there's nothing like that. We, we have, um, my, our, they're on the way out, unfortunately, but, uh, we have our GP forties still in passenger service. And, uh, Man, there's nothing like just just sitting with your foot up on the cab heater, window open, heat blast, and it's about 40 degrees out, and you're just rocking through the New Jersey meadows at 70 miles an hour, going up the Burton County line or Main Line. That's just there's I I can't uh, I I can't find anything else that's quite like it. I mean, it is the best job anybody could ever have. I I got lucky that you know my dream job was something that's attainable, like being an engineer. Yes. Because this is just, there's, there's nothing like it. Well, that, uh, when we lived in Cleveland, we're in suburbs of Cleveland, out Rocky River, I could run over to Berea and mm-hmm. on any given day, right at Depot Street there where the uh, old passenger station, well, there'd be 25 rail fans sitting there. And one of our friends was with UP. He had gone away. And UP was doing work for CSX. It had to do with track geometry. And so mm-hmm. he was back. And so I mentioned to him when we were getting ready to move to Arizona. He goes, won't you apply for a job at uh, UP? And I went, well, I'm probably a little older than what they want. And he said, let me make a phone call or two. And so he did and talked to his train master and he said, no, send your application in. And I went, mm-hmm. oh, I said, let me, I said, I'm going to do it. I said, but I'm going to think that, you know, I was in my early fifties, maybe mid fifties back then. And I said, they're going to look for somebody with a little younger blood that's going to be able to, you know, achieve more tenure and so forth. But my wife goes, what will you do if they come back and offer you a training program? I said, well, it probably <laughs> means I'm going to be out of town a lot between here and Dallas. And so, <laughs> and she goes, well, if that's what you want to do, be happy. So, But it didn't come about. But, you know, so I understand what you're saying. Sometimes you just pursue what's going to make you happy. Uh, yeah. I started out in the railroad industry after college in industrial engineering mm-hmm. with a freight car builder. And 
In fact, when I did that, I still viewed trains as nothing but impediments to to traffic flow on the uh, boulevards <laughs> through town, you know. And but I got interested because of the physics of rotational mass locomotives, the the seeming contradiction of the mass on the rail and that contact point, and it just lit a fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it went downhill from there. So, but. <laughs> You know, I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed, and anybody who, when we made trips, uh, you're going out with Gillette, be prepared. He's going to want to go to Union Station tonight and watch trains <laughs> after dinner and stuff like that. So I built a reputation. But, yeah, so it's all passenger service. Where are you going into? Um, currently, I uh, I work from I do the Midtown Direct service, which is uh, Dover, New Jersey to New York Penn Station. Okay, and, wow. Uh, oh yeah, it's uh, it, it's quite a challenge. I mean, Penn Station is a lot going on there, and yeah, you know, we we we're, we run these multi levels. You know, usually eight, nine, ten car trains, and yes. we have little four car platforms. So, I mean, it's. It's it, at first it's pretty intimidating because you, you've got this big train and you know you got to figure out exactly how you're going to get the you know you're run, you're running with say maybe eight nine cars open and you have to get them exactly where they have to be because you know like Chatham Station holds exactly six vestibules so you have about five feet on either side if if you're if you're off on one end the people are getting off in the rocks sliding down a hill. If you're off on the other end, they're on a bridge. So, you know, you, you've really got to be a hundred percent on that. And uh, that's, I mean, it, every train's a challenge. So that, that is enjoyable. I mean, it's, it's a little tough when you're feeling under the weather. Cause you know, sometimes you like to just put it on autopilot. And well, how many round trip. trips a day uh, do you do? Uh, most over jobs. Well, my job particularly does uh, two round trips a day. Okay. So I, I like to work evenings. I'm a night person. So, okay. you know, we'll do a, a trip in against rush hour. We'll come out in rush hour, which is usually an express train, a trip back in, you know, bringing people into the city to for some nightlife and then uh, a late night train, you know, bringing all the people that have had a good time. And, uh, you know, now they're on their way home, which is okay. that that's usually really interesting. Cause, uh, you know, people like to have a good time in the city, and uh, the, the good time doesn't end on the train. Yeah, okay. Well, when I lived in Sparta and worked down in Hackensack, you know, there were three of us that lived out there, and so we would carpool in, and, and we're going, you know, if only we could go to Dover, get on a train, and get off at Hackensack, you know. Mm-hmm. But no three hours a day in a car on the interstate. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it uh, used to see some uh, New York Susquehanna, some real neat uh, trains coming up grade going through uh, the outskirts of Sparta. Because uh, I can yeah, hear. That's, uh, oh, yeah. You can you can hear them working up Sparta Mountain. That's, that's yes. no joke. And that would give me enough time to hop in the car and run over to where it crossed 15 and sit there and watch, watch the SD45s or whatever it was, scream by and then run back to the house. Uh, 
Oh, yeah, golly. I've shot I've shot many pictures at that little little pond where it crosses uh, Route 15. <laughs> yeah, it's a great spot. Yep, a lot to be said for life in Sussex County, as long as you can work in Sussex County and not have to go into into the city. Yeah, that's um, that that's this New Jersey's really grown up, and uh, man, it, it's tough if you have to drive anywhere. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm amazed at how much traffic there is uh, around New Orleans. Now, we have, I see UP, Norfolk Southern, CSX, uh, Motive Power on these trains is double track, crosses I-10, goes on the, the western edge of City Park, and then is heading uh, east or east, I'm sorry, east or west out. So I know nothing about the track outside of, there's a lot of uh, intermodal on it and then just mm-hmm. manifest freight. And it must be a tie-up spot because there's always a lash-up parked on the bridge. And I'm going, but this, this is the oddest place. If this is a crew change place, because there's no way for a for a, a crew cab or anything or you know taxi mm-hmm. service to get close <laughs> to where these guys could get off unless they're just waiting for track to open up but uh the city had to rebuild uh it's called Wisner Boulevard and it crosses over this so it's a great train watching spot because you're way up mm-hmm. above it and you can get some panoramic shots as they approach and leave but most of the spots around here, I've been told, are in the category of you don't want to be there. <laughs> and I'm going, yeah. oh, oh, a little unsafe. And they're going, well, yes. <laughs> Daylight or no yeah, that, time, that doesn't make any difference. <laughs> that, that, that's the thing about railroads. We, we generally tra- we run our trains where you, would, you wouldn't want to be after dark. <laughs> that's, uh, I think that's yeah. true of most railroads. Yeah. Uh, that's what was so great about Berea. We had police coverage. It was in a nice residential business area. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, 110 trains a day going through there between Norfolk Southern and CSX. So, oh, 70 miles an hour speed limit up through there. So it was a lot of fun. And you get a yeah. camaraderie build up of the regulars who were there. So, so That's impressive. Okay. Well, I'll let you get back to the blizzard. <laughs> Wonderful. I mean, yeah, right now there's not a it's, cloud in the sky here, and it's about 60 degrees. So, But I'm a snow you, person. That, I'm a snow person, so. <laughs> you can have it, because I got plenty of it right now. I'm, I'm looking at about over a foot of snow right now, and it's still coming down hard. Okay. Yeah, just UPS me some, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I'll, I'll pack an ice pack in there for you. Keep it, keep it fresh. All right. Hey, Scott, thank you for the yeah. time. I've enjoyed this uh, conversation. Uh, Paul, I appreciate it too. Uh, it's been enjoyable. And, um, you know, thank you for the purchase of the parts. I, I can't wait to see what you do with that CF7. I will uh, send you some photos. That would be great. All right, Scott, you have a good day, buddy. All right. You do the same. Take care, Paul.